Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 97. My name is Christopher Luft, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be talking with Mike Pedrick, Vice President of Cybersecurity Consulting at Newspire. But first, a word from the sponsor of this show, Lima Charlie. My name is Maxim Lamet Brassard, and I'm the founder of Lima Charlie, and the company behind the SecOps Cloud Platform. Cybersecurity tools today need to evolve from the one-size-fits-all silos into a modern tool set to adapt to the specific needs that you have. The SecOps Cloud Platform works by providing you with full access to the underlying security tools and infrastructure. Everything's on demand with no minimums, no contracts. It's an approach that's really like AWS has done in IT. We offer a full-featured free tiers, no credit cards, no contracts, nothing. Get on the platform today, deploy an EDR, start ingesting logs, build a product, start an MDR, an MSSP, whatever you can imagine. We're making security flexible so you can build what's possible. You can learn more or get started for free at limacharlie.io. Hey, Mike, thanks for being with us on the show today. Thanks for having me. Uh, to get things going, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Uh, sure. Uh, my name is Mike Pedrick. I'm a, a hopelessly addicted car nut, uh, as well as a cybersecurity and, and risk consultant. And I'm also a, a trainer in the cybersecurity space. I'm accredited uh, with APMG to teach multiple certifications on behalf of ISACA. I also teach some CompTIA content and uh, ISC squared content as well. I'm always interested in the genesis story of guests on the podcast. I'm curious how you first got interested in computers and how did you turn that into a career in cybersecurity? You know, it's, it's sort of a circuitous path. Uh, I thought I wanted to be an architect right out of high school. And I recognized that, uh, or, or at least I thought I recognized that going into that career field would open doors from a financial perspective. Uh, just a means for having a career as opposed to having a job, again, right out of high school. And so I spent a couple of years in architectural design before realizing that I don't care about design as much as one would need to, to to be a successful architect. And so that was right about the time, you know, the dot-com boom uh, period. And so there was a, a high degree of, of attraction to information technology. Uh, transitioning from IT to information security, however, uh, that was, you know, more of a I was audited, I guess, is the, the bottom line. Uh, and my security program was hot garbage. So I realized that uh, if if I was ignorant to some of the more nuanced expectations from an information security perspective, then I would have bet others in my in my situation, in my demographic, in my, you know, organizational structure, hierarchy, et cetera, they were probably ignorant to those things as well. And so that pushed me full-time into consulting and specifically in security, and there I've been ever since. So the reason I asked you on the show is because you have a really interesting focus or overlap with some of your skills, which I think you alluded to in your introduction. You have some expertise in both cybersecurity and electric vehicles. How did those two things come to share space in your life? Uh, I bought one. Uh, I bought an EV, and it, you know I was instantly thrust into the you know, the world of all my, my gearhead car buddies that I've, you know, spent time with over the decades, turning wrenches on very loud, very fast, very 
uh, I will say, pollution-friendly vehicles. Uh, and suddenly I have this electric vehicle. Suddenly I'm, I'm the guy driving around on a large battery. And so I was defending my defending myself from my gearhead compatriots and then defending my gearhead compatriots from from the EV crowd pretty quickly. And it's just a part of, you know, our nature, I think, in this particular space that we can't we can't not learn about a thing once it's a part of our part of our orbit. Mm -hmm. Hackers going to hack, right? Yeah. Also that. Yep. <laughs> uh, I find this topic incredibly interesting because there's a huge push for adoption and manufacturers are rushing to cram as much technology as they can into these vehicles. And if history has taught us anything, when there's a big rush to get technology to market, security is often an afterthought. For context, there were 10.5 million electric vehicles sold in 2022, and that number is projected to grow to over 31 million in 2027, and then over double that to 74.5 million by 2035. And according to a recent Deloitte report on cybersecurity concerns in the automotive industry, 84% of attacks on vehicles were done remotely, and 50% of those attacks were done in the past two years. All of this data and the kinetic potential of these devices make the whole thing a little terrifying to me. At a very high level, what are your thoughts on the state of security for the onboard computers and networks being used to create these fleets? So first and foremost, I think you sort of nailed it, right? That as we rush to introduce something to the market, the first handful of generations of that particular thing suffer from uh, just not knowing any better, right? Um, I also want to put out there, though, that if we look at EV companies as falling into one of two buckets, the traditional automakers who are rolling out EVs in response to growing demand for EVs versus organization organizations that were created specifically in the EV space, like Tesla, Rivian, and, and so on. Um, the, one of the more important distinctions is that when we look at Ford or we look at GM or we look at traditional automakers, they have been building cars for decades and over a century in a couple of those cases. With companies like Tesla or Rivian, they are predominantly technology companies that are building cars. And so they don't have that history of building a vehicle. They do have history with software and software development practices. Unfortunately, translating software into the, into the physical world historically has not been perfect, right? We, we see that even in traditional automakers where we would often look to the proprietary infotainment system on those vehicles. Again, internal combustion engine vehicles, any vehicle is fair game. And think to ourselves, boy, that's just a mess. It's a good thing you do cars well. You don't do software well. And so I think that we're seeing sort of that confluence of organizations like Tesla and Rivian feeling out their their steps in a new world for them. Um, and, and, you know, there's going to be some pitfalls. There's going to be some things that, that looked good on paper, but in the real world just did not work so well. They'll find that out. They'll adjust. Uh, hopefully they'll adjust and uh, do better the next time around. Subsequent generations will improve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one point of vulnerability I found while researching for this interview, which was a bit of a surprise for me, was the charging stations are susceptible to attack and have been successfully compromised in a bunch of different cases in the wild. Most of it has been innocuous, hackers making the charging stations display pornography and stuff like that. But there appears to be a real threat there, everything from exposing customer data to bringing down the power grid. Are you familiar with any of the risks here? I am. Yeah. And I, it's obvious that, uh, you know, we've been saying for years in, the, in our particular industry that as soon as we connect to the internet, uh, risk ratchets up 
accordingly, right? As soon as we're connected, that interconnectivity piece is a, is a core, uh, source of the risk to those environments. And for better or for worse, everything has to be connected anymore uh, from thermostats to charging stations to our cars. Uh, there's, there's just this, this massive drive from the business perspective. And I would argue by extension from the consumer perspective for things to be connected to the internet. Well, that makes them susceptible and it makes them, um, attractive to hackers and opportunists and nation state actors and, and so on and so forth. Now, in terms of charging stations, we have a couple of things coming together simultaneously. The first is that they are new. They are new technologies. They are potentially, they are, they potentially have vulnerabilities that had not even been considered previously because this is a new, this is a pioneering, um, industry to, to some extent. But also they're attractive because, uh, number one, power. Uh, number two, the, the representative destructive value, right? Now, as you said, there's, there's some things that are innocuous, you know, walking up to a charger and something's playing on the screen that shouldn't be or that's not expected. Um, okay, come on. You're, you, nobody's going to lose sleep over this. That's, that's, as you said, uh, innocuous. But also to your point, imagine going from minor annoyance, uh, i.e. saying a charging station is not available to somebody who is, rolling in on whatever the equivalent of, of uh, electric vehicle fumes are, and now they can't charge their vehicle because the, the charging station's been compromised. That's annoying. But crashing the grid as a result of, uh, you know, turning up the wick on, on a, a charging station or something similar, that has very real implications. And you can imagine um, ideolo- ideological uh, perspectives, you know, motivating somebody to do such a thing. And I, I hasten to advocate for something as, uh, you know, as, as rudimentary as, you know, we just need to take them off the grid. They can't be connected to the internet anymore. They can't be, you know, that's the safest thing. Just make them autonomous, you know, systems unto themselves. That's kind of goofy too, right? I, I fully acknowledge the convenience of, and in fairness, mine is a Tesla. So I, I plug into the system. I don't take out a credit card. I don't do anything. I plug it in. I sit in my car for 15 minutes. I unplug it and I drive off again. There, I've gotten awfully accustomed to that, maybe painfully accustomed to that. And so if that wasn't an option anymore, even as a security measure or a, or a you know privacy protection measure, which I would fully support, I'd still be annoyed enough that I might consider going back to the traditional model of gas stations and you know, internal combustion engines. Yeah, the power attack grid scenario comes from the fact that remote hackers could turn the chargers on and off, and most people plug their cars in overnight. So by switching massive amounts of chargers on and off, you could create like turbulence in the grid and take it right down. So I'm not speaking for public charging stations, but the recommendations for consumers is to not connect their home chargers to the internet, which I didn't even know was a thing. It is. And, and it's interesting that uh, I bought a connector, a wall connector to for my home use. So I charge at home. And when it was installed, that was the first thing that I noticed as I was reading the documentation. It said it must be connected to the Internet. Uh, I, I fancy myself a you know savvy sort of cat. The first thing I did was carve off a part of my network that was dedicated solely to this device. Doesn't share any space other than geography with other systems on my on my network but the whole time i was thinking to myself 
for, for what? I mean, the obvious use case would be data analytics from uh, Tesla's perspective. They want to know how often are you charging? What's the quality of the, the charging apparatus, et cetera. But we know there's other, there's other uh, business focused needs there, right? But what if I don't? What if I just don't plug this thing into the, the internet? What if I just use it for electricity? Isn't that what it's for? I couldn't imagine buying a new iPhone or something along that line and being told that the charging cable for the iPhone had to be connected to the internet. That would just blow my mind. Yeah, and this probably goes back to some of the privacy concerns that people have with these systems is like all that metadata that companies are able to collect about, you know, behaviors and, and usage and stuff like that. 100%. So another vulnerability I was reading about that applies to electric vehicles, which is somewhat familiar and I think applies to much more than electric vehicles, is a Bluetooth relay attack. I even saw some videos on YouTube of people doing this to steal cars. Mm -hmm. Can you explain this one to our listeners and how it can be used against electric vehicles? Yeah, it's super easy. So so let's let's start out by setting the tone. So Bluetooth is the underlying technology for so many things in our lives anymore. When you have wireless AirPods or EarPods um, and there's no wire connected to that device and your phone or, or you're listening, you're, whatever it is you're listening from or listening to, primarily that's Bluetooth. It's a very easy, very quick, very low, um, I'm going to say low effort, low power wireless connectivity mechanism. Well, as we've gotten accustomed to transitioning from, I'm going to go way back now, the days when we had, remember we had a key ring with two ring, two keys on it, one key for the ignition and the other key for the doors. Yeah, pe- people listening know how old I am now by this point. So anyway, we transitioned from that to uh, a key with a key fob. You unlocked the car, disabled the alarm, put the key in the ignition and turned it. Well, as we've progressed from that up through keyless entry, to where we just keep a fob in our pocket, open the door and get in the car, the natural progression from there was, hey, how about we just eliminate the fob, right? We're all walking around with smartphones in our pocket capable of Bluetooth connectivity. And the phone, you authenticate to the phone, there's that piece done. And now the phone can authenticate to the car. And now you don't need a fob, you don't need a key, you need you and your phone and you can get in your car and you can drive off. That's awesome. And there's been strong response on the part of the the consumers that that's what we want. That's that's a that's fantastic. It's one less thing I got to put in my pocket. I'm I'm good with that, right? Unfortunately, Bluetooth the Bluetooth connection itself is not um, there's not a, a high degree of authentication required there, right? You just come near it. And like, like imagine the difference here and, and people will recognize this. If you take out your phone and it's in sleep mode or whatever, you have to authenticate to it. You have to, you know, put your thumb on the, the sensor or look at the thing or enter your code. You have to authenticate to get into the phone. But when you have a, uh, when you're using your phone as your key to go to your car, you, you don't have to do that. Your arms are full of groceries. This is part of the benefit of the thing. You just get your phone close enough in proximity to the vehicle and the doors are unlocked and you can get access to the vehicle. You don't have to authenticate to your phone to then get into the vehicle. Well, Bluetooth and part of the reason why that's favorable is Bluetooth has a very short range. You can't get more than just a couple of meters away from the vehicle before that signal isn't strong enough for it to actuate. 
insert relays here, right? So if you have your vehicle out at the end of your driveway or, or on your driveway and you're sitting in your living room watching television, in that scenario all by itself, you're not close enough to your vehicle for the vehicle to recognize your phone and unlock. Um, uh, but potentially, of course, you know, distances vary, right? But if I'm an attacker, if I'm, if I'm a, if I'm bent on stealing the vehicle, I can put myself in between you and your vehicle with a relay, boost that Bluetooth signal from your device and get access to your vehicle. And then it should be relatively academic from there to leave with it because existing, you know, part of that process is your Bluetooth connection, the existence of your phone within proximity of your vehicle doesn't just unlock the vehicle. It also authorizes the the starting of the vehicle. Now, I've always felt that, you know, you're not going to get a second chance, right? Somebody comes up, they steal your vehicle. The next time they shut that car off, now they got to do something else because you can't relay indefinitely from a phone to, you know, miles and miles away. Um, but they got it away from you. Yeah. And that car probably went right onto a shipping container and then overseas to where they have the processing facilities to turn that into a brand new consumer vehicle, right? Right. Well, and, and actually there's, there's, it's even easier. There's uh, mechanisms for communicating with the ECU and other individual uh, devices and modules within the vehicle anywhere that the CAN bus can be accessed. And as devices or, or components of vehicles have gotten more sophisticated over the years, there's that constant signal back and forth to, to the, the ECU. Well, either the ECU or the body control module or the transition control module, depending on what it is we're talking about. But I'll leave that alone for a second. Um, try to imagine, right? You've got window modules. The, these actuate the windows. Uh, window goes up, windows go down if you hit the, the button. But because they're individualized modules with unique identifiers as far as the ecosystem of the vehicle is concerned, you could take the actuator out of the driver's side door install it in the passenger side door. And when you hit the button on the passenger side door, the driver's side window still goes down because the system recognizes that module belongs to the driver's side, not the passenger side, right? And so as things have gotten more uh, sophisticated in that way, thieves have figured out that if we can get access to the CAN bus, we've got total control over the vehicle. And that CAN bus is accessible anywhere there is a device that has that that hard wind back to the ECU or body control module, et cetera. Headlights, taillights, these are things that can be removed very quickly from the outside of the vehicle and somebody can jack into that, that bus and issue commands, unlock the doors, start the engine, whatever. So I would, I'm, I'm always imagining to myself that these, these thieves understand this dynamic well enough. They can do a very low risk, very, it's not loud at all. Bluetooth relay process, get into your vehicle, drive off. And the next thing they're going to do is compromise whatever they need to, to get access to the CAN bus. And then it's, it's their vehicle. They can do whatever they want with it. Yeah. Wow. I, I, the YouTube video I saw really blew my mind. I think it was like a ring doorbell video. And it showed uh, one guy down on the street waiting at the car and the other guy ran up to the door to get close to whoever, you know, like you said, was sitting on the couch in the living room and had an antenna sticking out of his backpack. And then the other guy got into the car, started it. The one guy at the door ran down, jumped in and they were gone in, you know, 30 seconds or less. It was yeah. something else. And it was a Mercedes too, which you would expect would have a high level of security. But this is obviously a big flaw in that model. 
Well, and it's it's interesting because when researchers brought this up to Tesla, and I, w- I want to be judicious about how I say this, Tesla is Tesla is similar to Microsoft in in that everybody wants to take a shot at the champ. You know, I'm going to use that phrasing uh, rather audaciously. Uh, so researchers brought it up to Tesla that they could get into the vehicle with nothing more than a Bluetooth relay attack. And Tesla's response, which I think everybody bristled at initially, was, well, that's always going to be a risk. It's It just is a thing. Well, what do you expect us to do about this? Case closed. And initially, again, I think we bristled. We all bristled. Even as a Tesla owner, I was like, well, really? You're not going to do anything about this, but with the technologies that we have available today, as well as the, you know, the, the practical realities, we got people who won't do multi-factor authentication on sensitive data. Do we think we're going to make them actually take their phone out of their, their pocket and authenticate before the car accepts them into the, uh, you know, into the vehicle? This is not going to be a thing. Customers will, will revolt. So I, I think it's just a thing where we have to have compensating controls. Leaving your Mercedes out on your driveway, maybe don't do that. Um, maybe put it in the garage, right? Move some boxes to the side and pull it into the garage if you have to. Um, or, you know, recognize that maybe the Bluetooth option isn't the best option anymore and go back to whatever it is that the manufacturer supplied you with, a card or a fob or or something along that line. Yeah, and it's super interesting if if you think across a whole spectrum of security and cybersecurity, so much of the risk is related to ease of use for the end user. You know, I think about like cloud configurations are set to work easily when people first try these technologies so that they become adopters, but they're often the worst kind of configurations from a security standpoint. And even things like file previews on computers are the kind of places where attackers will have, you know, malicious bits of code that they figure out how to run during that preview process. So it's it's fascinating that by trying to make the lives easier for everybody, we make it less secure. Yeah, but that's that's the way it's always been, right? It's a cat and mouse game. Um, well, cat, mouse, and dog, I suppose, right? So, you know, security professionals are stuck between users who want it to be easy and convenient and attackers who also want it to be easy and convenient so that they can compromise it. Now, I think we touched on this a little bit already, uh, but it's something we spoke about leading up to this interview, and that was one of the big concerns with EVs is privacy and, and how much metadata and data is leaked about users. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, so part of the, if you look at EVs and, and cars in general, uh, not least a, a component of this journey that we're on with regard to electric vehicles is a, a push towards semi-autonomous vehicles. And there's a couple of arguments there and, and it's not really necessarily worth unpacking. But as part of that, they have a, a voracious appetite for data. How is the vehicle operating? How are people using the vehicle? Where is the vehicle going? What is it doing, especially when the, the driver is ostensibly not in full control of the vehicle and, and so on and so forth? And so they hoover up all of the data they can get, all of the telemetry information um, you know, available. They will collect that information and do data analytics and ad nauseum with that data. Now, unfortunately, I say unfortunately, I'm going to, I gave it oxygen, so I'm going to commit to it. Unfortunately, data is also very valuable out on the open market. So they can sell a good portion of that information for targeted advertising and, and data, you know, aggregation purposes. 
it's an industry that I, I despise the existence of. I'll, I'll commit to saying that as well. But it's the reality that that information is out there. And so as we've added cameras and microphones and, and sensors to vehicles, pulling in that information, in a lot of cases, we either don't know or don't know the extent of what the vehicle is capable of collecting. And it's got good use cases. You know, we can, we can find a rationale for things, you know, such as in every Tesla, there's a, a tiny little camera above the rear view mirror that can see the, the whole cabin of the vehicle. That's a little jarring for, for folks like, you know, folks like us initially. Um, you know, it's the same thing as the webcam. Whenever we'd open up a new laptop since, you know, 2004, 2005, we'd put a little piece of tape over the, the, the camera. Same thing in a vehicle now. So they are perfectly capable of collecting data that we might not be aware of or might not, might not be aware of the extent of that, that capability. I'm also going to add something here as well, that there is a drive toward, gosh, no pun intended. There's a, there's a drive towards smart roadways. The idea here is that we can get so many efficiencies with regard to uh, traffic control, traffic flow, maybe load balancing of, of routes between uh, destinations. Now, Google does some of that using our smartphones with their, their Google Maps application. But the idea is that we, we can be so much more efficient with that if we have smart roads. If the car communicates with the road and vice versa, we get so much information that we can use for efficiency purposes around a, a metro area. Well, that's all well and good, but that also means that we're going to be transferring data about the vehicle to the roadway system and, and those who operate those those systems. But, the, you know, legislators and, and state governments think the juice is worth the squeeze. And so it's also, also pushing vehicle manufacturers toward let's get these vehicles up to speed. Gosh, again, I'm so sorry. That does feel like a pun as well. So that they <laughs> can take advantage of those those technological advances and communicate freely with those systems. Now, it's also insurance providers drive some of that as well. You know, if and and law enforcement, if a car is stolen, going back to the idea of a, a Bluetooth relay attack, can I remotely stop that vehicle in an instant without engaging a service like OnStar or something similar? Right. Can I just shut that vehicle down by way of its its communication with the very road that it's on? And at a minimum, if I can't stop it, at least I know where it is at all times, right? Um, so I, I think it's it's going to get worse long before it gets better. Uh, I, I have the general sense too, as a practitioner, that a lot of that we're in the minority. Uh, we care about privacy way more than the aggregate, you know, in, in the general public. I think it's. Some of it is, is ignorance, but some of it also is that people have just shrugged it off. It just is what it is. All of my life, everybody's going to have all of my data. What am I going to do about it? It's fine. Forget about it. Another interesting angle I'd love to touch in this conversation, and I think it's one you've written about, is the supply chain risk involved in the manufacturing of vehicles. I think we caught a bit of this in the chip shortage around 2020, 2021, but the rabbit hole goes much deeper. Can you outline the risk for us here, Mike? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, if you think of a vehicle, you know, and we don't think about this often, but I'm going to pick on GM or actually I'll continue to pick on. No, I can't pick on Tesla in this regard. I'm going to pick on <laughs> GM, for example, um, largely because General General Motors has been around again for, well, since 1912. Uh, Chevy has been around since 1912. And every vehicle is made up of components, thousands of components. 
Now, GM has assembly plants, but they don't necessarily have a large manufacturing apparatus. And, and I want to, I want to be careful about how I separate, separate those out for, for the viewers. Um, it's one thing to take parts and assemble them together. I'm going to bolt an engine into a car. The engine is already assembled. It's made of, of thousands of parts itself, right? From pistons and rods and crankshaft block. You know, the, the heads are comprised of, of many moving parts, et cetera. But the engine itself is assembled when I put it into the vehicle, right? Well, there's a manufacturing process for every one of those individual pieces. GM has thousands of vendors, thousands of suppliers, and everybody creates a thing. Uh, they have a, a group of, of suppliers for windshields. Um, the name of the company is, uh, I'm going to remember it as soon as I get off of this call, um, Pilkington. Pilkington is a major manufacturer of windshields. They make aftermarket windshields. Oftentimes, if you go to a, you know, get your windshield refl- replaced, it's going to be a Pilkington windshield. They also provide windshields to uh, OEMs. So they come off the, the assembly line with those that same manufacturer's windshields. They don't make cars, but they do make windshields. And so what we have is an opportunity for compromising either the availability of or the integrity of or the confidentiality associated with any of those individual pieces in, in order to uh, launch an attack against a specific vehicle. Let's say I hate Tesla. As the owner of one, sometimes I do, right? Um, but if I hate Tesla enough that I want to inflict some pain on Tesla and Tesla's owners, I might try to find a way to compromise not Tesla, not Tesla's factory, but maybe a component that goes into one of those vehicles, right? Um, everything is fair game. Tires, seats, uh, maybe even the software that goes into, you know, the way the vehicle operates. That's an easier target than taking on a major corporation like Tesla or General Motors or Ford, et cetera. You know, Bob's stamping plant in, you know, one has one warehouse in a suburb uh, near Detroit. They don't have sophisticated controls. They'll be easy to take down, right? So um, supply chain risk, I think, I think has always been there for us, but it's it really came to the fore, you know, over the last couple of years when we started seeing actual legitimate significant attacks on supply chains. Yeah, an academic attack that I was reading about was uh, the researchers had found a vulnerability in uh, Bosch wrenches that were popular with car makers. So it's a type of digital torque wrench that is used on the assembly line to make sure the bolts are tightened to the manufacturer's specifications and stuff. And and the theoretical attack that they identified could be to uh, make the wrenches report a certain torque when it was actually applying a different torque to the the bolts on the car engines and stuff. So this would, you know, could cause accidents, recalls, and even shut down production. So I thought that there's definitely some room for some sneaky stuff there that could cause, you know, huge knock-on effects. And it might escape notice. A A car could get all the way into somebody's possession before we realize that a bolt that should have been at 120 foot pounds was really at 98 foot pounds. But the engineering team understands that the threshold where uh, there's undue risk on that bolt is at 109 foot pounds, right? And so even small, you know, presumably innocuous changes in those, those calibrations could have super deleterious effect. And maybe if I can draw a parallel, if you'll, if you'll permit me. It's not a 
technology-based issue, but Toyota got in a lot of trouble at the end of the, um, well, I'm going to say the early 10s, right, where they had the unintended acceleration issue with their vehicles. That wasn't a problem with technology. It wasn't that the throttle plate, even though they are drive-by drive by wire, not drive-by cable anymore, it wasn't that the throttle plate was stuck open. It was literally that the floor mat and the gas pedal were too close to each other. And the gas pedal was getting caught up in the floor mat. And, and, you know, when you're driving and your foot is pushing a thing down, it's difficult to pull it back up without contorting yourself under the, the steering wheel. Unfortunately, people died. But the fix was to cut an eighth of an inch off the bottom of the, of the gas pedal. Now try to imagine, you know, this, this is a very physical, very almost caveman sort of scenario. But try to imagine the making very minor, the equivalent of an eighth of an inch off the bottom of a gas pedal changes to things like bolt torque in an engine, out of an engine, in a car, body panels, suspension components, braking components, whatever that could be. Um, how deleterious that would be for, for drivers out on the road, you know, at any time. And it, it could take years. It could take, you know, forever for that to surface, but. If we traced it back to that one, you know, torque wrench that maybe shouldn't have been connected to the internet, yeah, <laughs> um, we'd feel pretty bad about that. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, more things to be worried about. Um, I know, right? <laughs> so I, I save this one for near the end because this one is just wild to me. Apparently, Volkswagen has decided to integrate ChatGPT into their new EVs. Uh, apparently, ChatGPT will support the vehicle's voice assistant, which can, and I quote, automatically prioritize whether a vehicle function should be executed, a destination searched, or the temperature adjusted. It wasn't clear to me what exactly a vehicle function was, but it seems like the beginning of a bad idea. Do you have any thoughts on this one for us, Mike? I do, and I'll start out by playing devil's advocate. A vehicle function could be anything from picking a particular radio station to you know, climate control, temperature selection to actuation of the ABS, um, you know, the anti-lock braking system and so on. And so I can see a case. I can, I can force myself to make a case for a system like chat GPT or something similar to, to make certain decisions, right? It's, it's disadvantageous for us to take a left turn right now because there's a wall right next to us. That's that's a bad idea. So I could see locking a driver out from making uh, those sorts of choices uh, from a, from a safety perspective. I could also see them see that system being used for you know collision avoidance. Right? Try to imagine if we give ChatGPT and other AI tools access to the entirety of the world, almost literally. Um, we could imagine a case where ChatGPT recognizes that there's significant traffic in front of us and reroute navigation accordingly. Or again, in the notion of collision avoidance, if ChatGPT is able to understand that there's a vehicle traveling at a high rate of speed perpendicular to our vector, it could make a decision. And that's that's okay. I could see that being more advanced than some of the more, um, I'm going to say, young in, in their, you know, trajectory proprietary systems that we have in place in cars today. Um, I still don't like it because for every, we haven't learned this yet, that decisions that computers make on their own can also be influenced by outside entities to make contrary choices fairly quickly, right? So like we're talking about, you know, hackers and people that are compromising systems, you know, torque wrenches. 
you know, the, the, the torque wrench should be dumb in my estimation. It should just be set to a certain value and hit that value every time until it wears out and then we replace it. And the one we replace it with is also dumb. But I'm, but I'm old and sort of scared of change sometimes, right? So if there are controls around digital torque wrenches, great, awesome. Let's, let's go ahead and use that. I could see the efficiencies that might be gained there. Chat GPT and similar AI tools in this um, delivery mechanism still scare me enough, enough to make me nervous and, and really not want one, right? I, it, unless we put some sort of division between Chat GPT telling me, you know, um, if I if I'm driving along and say, hey, you know, Chat GPT, what was the number one hit of, uh, you know, March, first week of March in, in 1993, play that song. OK, cool. That's kind of novel. That's kind of neat. That's entertaining. Um, but I do not need Chat GPT or something similar having control over my vehicle. That's that's not um, it's not something I'm interested in quite yet. Yeah, the kinetic potential there is is potentially life ending, and as you mentioned, there is ways to poison models, and in these models have been shown to hallucinate, not always produce predictable results. So, yeah, I can, I, I think we should tread very cautiously, and I hope that this is just an attempt at Volkswagen trying to get some uh, press and in marketing coverage, um, given their bold vision of the future. Right? It'll always be effective that way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so. One of the last ones I have for you is, you know, there there seems to be a lot of stuff here. The industry is growing like crazy. Do you think as the industry evolves, we will see a field of cybersecurity that develops that specializes in electric vehicle infrastructure and vehicles in general? Yeah, I think we already have it. I I, I want to give the EV market credit in that because it started out as a as a technology concern first, manufacturing and vehicle concern second. I think that there's genuinely, I mean this with all sincerity, there's there's genuinely folks in that stream who have the best of intentions. They understand the importance of data protection. They understand the the landscape, at least in as great a, a scale as we would expect professionals in this space to have. And so they've they've done their level best. Um, you know, while balancing the concerns of the bean counters, you know, in, in the in the corporate office. So I'm I'm heartened, but I'm also frustrated because I, I think that especially these newer organizations, maybe by necessity, maybe I could be argued into this is the only way it's ever going to be. But I think that they have a tendency to beta test on drivers, on owners, right? We're going to roll out a new function and we tested it for a couple of weeks, but we're just going to see how it goes for consumers of the product because we can just do over the air updates. And if... And if it doesn't go well, we can just issue another update. That's the Microsoft Windows model, right? Um, now I've called out Tesla and Microsoft. I am so sorry. Uh, but I think that that's, that's my frustration. I would surely love this, whatever this is, whatever new feature or function, et cetera, I would love for that to have been more well-baked before it was put out. And I have a small example for you. Um, all... Electric vehicles in the U.S. are required to emit a sound when they're traveling at low speed, for example, through a parking lot. The idea being that you know pedestrians can hear the vehicle and get out of the way, right, or, or move to the side, et cetera. They need to be able to hear the vehicle for, for safety, for pedestrian safety uh, regulations. Um, 
there's a specific sound or specific characteristics of that sound set by um, the NTSB. Tesla issued a fun, neat little update that said that you could leverage the speaker under the hood of their vehicles to, you know, make noises, you know, like the, like, you know, old car horn sounds, goat screamings, whatever it is. Right. And, and you could, you could do that, you know, as you're driving along, they got in trouble because if that sound is playing, the sound that the vehicle is supposed to be emitting as it travels through the parking lot cannot be heard. And that's a compromise of pedestrian safety. Now, I would argue that if you're playing a sound at all, you've addressed the intent of that rule. But the government didn't see it that way. So Tesla had to initiate an immediate update again to follow up to disable that sound if the vehicle is in motion. But those are sort of some of the things that I feel like somebody at home base should have picked up on that, should have said, wait, hold up. Before we do this, let's go check the, the regs, right? And... You know, again, putting those two things together, great professionals understand security, understand the importance of, of safety and security and technology and so on. Still testing on drivers and owners. And I'm not, I'm not as much of a fan of that. Yeah. Move fast and break things probably shouldn't apply to the automotive industry. No, probably, probably not. All right. So this is the final one I have for you. It's the one I ask of everybody who comes on the show. It can be as wide or as narrow as you want. Do you have any predictions for the future of cybersecurity? Mm, I predict more alignment with privacy. Um, privacy, data privacy is a bit of a passion project for me. And I, it's staggering to me how over the years, instead of being you know, a Venn diagram being two circles, security and data privacy, now it just looks like one blurry circle. And so I think that that's going to continue to be a thing, that data protection um, and data privacy protection will start to convene, especially because we have 12 states now who have enacted privacy legislation and several more um, who, who are discussing it. And so we're very, very close to the point where we will have privacy legislation that might um, trample on or at least overlap with security legislation. And so I think cybersecurity practitioners are going to be forced into also being privacy practitioners. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. And that aligns with some of the stuff we've been seeing, a bunch of federal regulations related to healthcare funding and in other federal organizations. So I, I think cybersecurity is definitely going to become a more prominent and enforced mandate for, for many companies and organizations. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome, Mike. This was a great conversation. Really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. I haven't purchased my first EV yet, but I have no doubt it's on the horizon. Yeah, and uh, I'll have lots to think about when I do. Absolutely. If I can be of any help, let me know. All right. Take care, sir. All right. You too. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.